0: You are not going to want to miss one minute of today's episode. We have Dr. Anita Samani. She is a highly respected and talented healthcare professional with over 30 years of medical and academic experience in OBGYN. She's a past president of the Columbus Medical Association and she's actively involved in organized medicine as an OSMA delegate and a graduate of the Physicians Leadership Academy. So in a nutshell, she pretty much knows her stuff. We're here to talk about things like menopause, sex, what we can do, what we experience. So sit back and listen in as we talk with Dr. Samani. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Podcast.
1: I am breast surgeon, Dr. Deepa Hala Harvey.
0: And I'm Monica Brooks, a cancer advocate and we're both
1: breast, breast cancer, cancer survivors. survivors.
0: We're here to talk about all things breast cancer.
1: From surgery to survivorship, we know firsthand the challenges and questions a breast cancer diagnosis brings.
0: We are here to tackle topics that impact our lives. Let's get started.
1: We wanna welcome Dr. Somani, who is an amazing, fabulous OB-GYN here in Columbus, Ohio. And we are so grateful that you're making time for our podcast. And when I told people that you're going to be on our podcast today. And a couple of my partners, breast surgeons, were so excited. And I know our... uh, Patients in the community are going to be so excited to have you here. I know you as a physician who's greatly involved in teaching the residents, the fellows, and people in the community, and um, you're just an amazing person.
2: Thank you. Well, you know, it's wonderful to share patients with you because I always get such good feedback. You know, when they come back to see me, they're like, oh, I'm so glad you referred me to her. You know, she listens, she understands, and I think you have a deeper understanding of some of the issues patient space because of your own experience. So that makes a huge difference. You know, we can be empathetic, but when you live that experience, you, you kind of can take it to that next level and really help people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel truly privileged to be able to do that for our patient population. So just before coming on here, I was telling Monica, every time we get together to do a podcast, I feel like I have, I learned so much. And um, and that's like the fun part of this is we both keep on learning and growing. And so it's exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We hear these statistics of one out of eight women will get breast cancer over a lifetime. And you think, okay, that's if they live to be age 90. But then in reality, sometimes I feel like, oh my gosh, that statistic is now. Yeah. You You look at younger women getting breast cancer. When you look at women who survive, I mean, I have a patient who got breast cancer at 29, and she's 42. I mean, she's done amazingly well, but you know, she has sort of those issues that come from getting breast cancer at a young age, yeah. and I think those are things that are often underappreciated. Absolutely, 100. They're just starting their life. You know, at that age, you don't think of right
1: and right. Then 20, 23, you don't think of, but you know, once you go through the treatment of breast cancer, especially if one receives chemo that can cause a lot of effects on a woman's body. We have to think about the fertility issues and you know, more than anyone, the men typical woman who doesn't go through breast cancer has menopause around what 51, 52. Am I right with that? Yeah. And now you're, you know, putting these 19, 20, 25 year olds in menopause. As a result, they're losing their estrogen in their, in their bodies as a result of either chemotherapy or ovarian suppression because of hormonal blockade therapies. And that not only has, detrimental effects on their fertility, but also menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, uh, mood changes, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse. So I wanted to first start with how do you, even you have a patient who comes to you in the typical menopausal age who is 51, 52, what's your conversation like for someone who's going through menopause?
2: Yeah. So my conversation actually starts when they're in their forties and they come in for their annual exam. We start kind of briefly talking about you know have you had any menstrual changes are you noticing hot flashes or night sweats because typically when you're in perimenopause and you're not on birth control pills or you don't have a marine iud you may notice like hot flashes right that week before your period when your estrogen and progesterone levels your estrogen levels are lower than your progesterone levels and so you know, it's like, aha, you know, it's that aha moment. Patients are like, oh my gosh, I did notice that. And I didn't know if that was normal or not. So, you know, starting that conversation in their forties is really important to say, look, these are normal changes. It's normal to have some hot flashes before your menstrual cycle. It's normal to maybe feel a little bit more moody. You know, um, maybe the PMS is intensified. Maybe you start to notice a little vaginal dryness. You know, maybe you start to notice that your sleep is a little more disrupted because of those night sweats. So those are things that really do start in your forties. Some other less known side effects of menopause and perimenopause are things like joint pain, brain fog. You know, I have a lot of patients coming in saying, oh my gosh, I can't remember anything. I am like having to make lists or I like just can't focus and concentrate. And if you, if you remember basic science, which most of us don't, estrogen receptors are found throughout the body. I mean, you will see estrogen receptors in your brain and your heart and your bones, you know? So, I mean, even your skin and your hair are affected. And those are things that I think most people don't really address or talk about because they don't really think of that in terms of menopause and loss of hormones. So everything you can imagine that happens to a normal woman going through menopause, literally you can imagine for your patients that are young with breast cancer, that you're suppressing their hormones whether you do it with your GnRH agonists or you do it with the hormones you prescribe but they're going to experience the same things. So when they come in and they're experiencing those things and your hands are tied in some respects, right? As a breast surgeon, you're you're stuck. You're going, "Oh, I want to treat you. I want to help you, but I can't give you estrogen, you know, so where do we go from here? Those are those are kind of the conversations we need to have.
0: I agree. And I'm just listening, like, check, check. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I was diagnosed when I was 37, not realizing mm-hmm. I was going to go into menopause. So it started with the hot flashes. It's the brain fog, it's the vaginal dryness, I, The the lack of interest in sex. It's like all of these things. And it's I think that's the thing with a cancer diagnosis is like, yes, it's cancer. Yes. We're fighting it and doing what we do, but then you have these after effects and it's like, I had no idea this came with a cancer diagnosis. So it is very life-changing, for you know women who aren't expected to go through menopause until later and here they are in their 20s, 30s and 40s experiencing this. It's it's tough.
2: And I think the other thing, you know, when you mention libido, I mean so many of these women are are juggling multiple things, right? You have young kids, you have a busy job, yeah. and those things affect libido also and then you throw into it the whole hormonal changes so it is something that kind of impacts the whole process
0: what are some ways when you have a patient maybe who isn't expected to go through menopause in their 20s and 30s what, what how do you try to help them
2: there's a whole range of non-hormonal things we can do um unfortunately women's sexuality has never been addressed as much as men's sexuality yeah i mean i've had patients say to me how come my husband's viagra is covered and my vaginal estrogen is not covered right, right? i yeah. mean it's insane and I think this is where I think political advocacy as a physician comes into play, because for so many years you look at how is research done. It's done looking at women often are excluded from studies. You know, when you look at um, political advocacy, how did we make huge strides in terms of coverage for women for implants? You know, that was something that was not covered until we started speaking out and saying, look you know, for women, this is a body image issue, and you need to cover implants, or the mammograms, you know, those the extra testing for the dense breasts, you know, it became something that was required, again, because of political advocacy. So I think that when you when we think about the next steps, you know, with more and more younger women being impacted by breast cancer, there are non hormonal treatments, there are prescriptions for libido, but they're not covered. So even if I offer them to my patient and I say, look, there's two different things. One's comparable to Viagra for women, but the problem is you can't drink alcohol. If you take it, you know, you might want to, you know, limit yourself to one drink, or you may not want to drink when you're, you're taking this medication to help you in terms of stimulating your libido. The other one is fairly new. It's come out on the market recently. It's in a subcutaneous injection that you're supposed to give yourself a few hours beforehand. So it's kind of like stimulating your libido, but you have to want to plan to have sex. So there are things that we're finally getting out there. And now it's just a function of getting that coverage, getting you know that, that ability to say, women's sexual needs are equal to men, right? Right. We, we need to be able to offer these options to our patients who cannot take estrogen, whether it's from the hormonal changes. Now they have vaginal dryness, but then even worse, they may end up with vaginal stenosis where it just, people will say, it feels like my insides are ripping apart because the loss of elasticity the loss of collagen, those things impact. And then if you're if you're afraid to have sex, you don't have sex. So then it makes it worse. It, and again, you know, you tell your patients, oh, one of the best things you can do is frequency of sex. I mean, I tell patients that in menopause too. I'm like, have sex more frequently, it will help. It's like exercise, right? Yeah. You know, we ran into each other on a run, and it's like if you don't exercise, you lose those muscles. Yeah. So yeah. Same thing. If you're not having sex, you're losing those muscles, you know. And I tell I mean, even like when you think about like pelvic floor disorders, like prolapse, I mean, you have to exercise those muscles. So I kind of put it into that context when we talk about, and, and again, sometimes if you don't have that urge to have sex, but you just think, okay, I'm going to get my lubricants, I'm going to do this. And then you, you naturally get in the mood, right? You kind of start out and then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, this is fun, you know? So I think that's where it's really important to bring those things together, bring the political advocacy together as as doctors and then talking to our patients about non-hormonal options that, you know, we do think and even like our American College of OBGYN says that you can use vaginal estrogen for breast cancer survivors You know, the other area where um, you and I share patients are those patients that are doing prophylactic surgery, whether they're BRCA1 and they're removing their ovaries at age 35, their tubes and ovaries, or they're 45 and they're BRCA2 survivors. And they're coming in to discuss prophylactic surgery, whether it's mastectomy or hysterectomy or oophorectomy, those patients need to recognize and understand that after surgery, they should take estrogen, that we should support their use of estrogen, not only for the the sexual vaginal health, but for the mental health. You know, when you think about dementia, when you think about bone loss, cardiovascular disease, I don't put people on it preventatively anymore, but in those circumstances, you have those special circumstances where you do want women to be on estrogen to support their brain fog or to support their bone health or their heart health. You know, if somebody says, oh, I don't have a history of cancer in my family, but I have a history of heart disease and bone loss, you know, and they're going through menopause and they're having hot flashes and they're not like genetic carriers. There are people who I would really strongly encourage them to do hormone therapy. And then the next question is for how long? Do it for five years? Do you do it for 10 years? There are a subset of women and depending on the studies you look at, it can be anywhere from 20 to 30%. Who will have hot flashes, night sweats, more common menopausal symptoms, even into their 70s and 80s. So um, I'm old enough to have gone through the 2002 Women's Health Initiative yeah. when everybody was told, go off your hormone therapy, you shouldn't take hormones, period. And I had women come back who were in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And they said, I don't care what your studies say. I feel old. I don't sleep well, my joints hurt, you need to put me back on my hormones. And so again, having that conversation was really critical. And I think it's the same thing with our breast cancer patients, whether they're genetic carriers or they're young women who've had breast cancer. And now you're you know, having these conversations with your gynecologist, you more and more we're tailoring therapy, right? You know, even when you think about gene therapy or immunotherapy, we are tailoring, tailoring therapy to the individual very personalized care. Yeah. Yeah. So if I if I have someone who says, you know what, I'm not a BRCA carrier, I have triple negative or I have estrogen positive, you know, we have the discussions of here are non hormonal options, there are water based lubricants, there are vaginal moisturizers, there are silicone based lubricants. I think people get those confused. Like when I talk about vaginal moisturizers. I talk about in the context of, you know, when your skin is dry in the winter and you put lotion on your skin, that is what a vaginal moisturizer is. You you use it two or three times a week. It helps supplement and keep that moisture in the vaginal tissue. But the lubricants are going to be for when you're having intercourse and the silicone based lubricants may be more helpful for breast cancer patients. If they're using condoms, if they're worried about STDs, then I would recommend obviously water-based lubricants with condoms so that they get more protection. But that being said, you know, the younger patients, you may start them on the vaginal moisturizers right away before they tip into the, Oh my gosh, it's painful. I have dryness. And one of the other things that I get a lot of referrals for is women who have quote vaginal infections, you know, they're sent to us because they have an infection and you test them and there's no infection And then, you know, you, you treat them or you reassure them and then they come back a month later. Oh, I have that infection again. And the reality is the vaginal infections and vaginal dryness have a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. So you may have somebody who's like, I'm itching, I burns, you know, just, it's so uncomfortable. And those symptoms could be Vaginitis, they could be a yeast infection, they could be a bacterial infection, or it could be atrophic vaginitis. And that I see uh, oftentimes too in the women in their late 40s who are coming in recurrent infections like, oh, right before my period, I always get an infection. Mm-hmm. And it takes some education, it takes some understanding to say, well, actually, that's not that. Let's try a vaginal moisturizer you know, from ovulation till post-period or even use it throughout the month once or twice a week.
0: Is the vaginal moisturizer intended to just help for sexual reasons? What are the overall benefits to that moisturizer?
2: So I would look at it just like you moisturize your face, you moisturize your body, you know, you're doing it to have healthy skin, right? Whether you want your skin to look younger or you want it to just look healthier or it peels and it gets dry and irritated. So you put moisturizers on. So it's in the same context that we can talk about vaginal moisturizers, you know, starting out maybe with your younger breast cancer patients saying, you know what, use the vaginal moisturizer a couple times a week, whether you're sexually active or not, it doesn't matter because the, a lot of these women that I see with quote vaginal infections are not sexually active, but they're having the symptoms of vaginal atrophy. They're having that dryness that discomfort that comes with the loss of estrogen, which then thins out the vaginal mucosa, it decreases the elasticity. It changes sort of that epithelial cell makeup that we're um, getting the symptoms from.
1: So I was just telling Monica before the podcast, I think of moisturizers as maintenance therapy and mm-hmm. lubricants as for love making, just to sort yeah. of remember it, um, just before sex use the lubricants, but moisturizer, you just use it just like you put moisturizer on your face.
2: Um, I agree. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah.
1: What are your favorite moisturizers that you recommend for patients?
2: So there's so many on the market now. I was shocked to see, you know, there's just so many, um, the hyaluronic acid moisturizers. There's lots of different trade names that those go by Replense is an oldie, but goodie, you know, that's a little bit less expensive. Some of the, the hyaluronic acid moisturizers. I mean, you know, that we use that for skin, um, for anti-aging, moisture, purposes. Yeah. Yeah. anti-aging purposes. So same thing there. And I mean, I don't, I kind of looked online just to kind of get a sense of okay, what what all is out there in terms of trade names? And it's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah. but you have to be willing, and again, because these aren't prescription, right. you know, you're you're having to pay a substantial amount for some of these medications and i think that again is is a barrier to yeah. women being able to get them and use them regularly. Yeah. So if it, if cost is an issue, i might recommend, you know, people start with just doing it once a week and seeing if that's enough to maintain their their vaginal moisture. If not, they can bump it up to two or three times a week and truly, you know, as you get older, that, that may change, you know, how much you need may change, whether it's increasing the dose or decreasing the dose. How about lubricants? Do you have a specific favorite one, not a non-hormonal one? Um, the silicone based lubricants tend to be a little bit better for most people, but again, you know, with your, your background, it's like, oh my God, silicone implants. Yeah. And then They hear the word silicone and they're like, yeah. are you sure? Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, it's different. You know. Yeah. Um, But if, if they're hesitant to use that, then the water-based, you know, the water-based lubricants are fine. The silicone-based lubricants, I think have a little bit more of that coating or, um, just kind of giving them a little bit more long-term relief as opposed to quickly dissipating or quickly disappearing.
1: And I know we touched on this earlier from the low libido, you said there was a drug that's out, um... Is that Addy or something else you're talking about?
2: Addy, the the subcutaneous injection, that one is a little more challenging. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of your patients are doing monthly injections and they're yes. going, really want me to do another injection? Yeah,
0: yeah. It is so difficult to be a woman. I mean, we have so many yeah. things to face. <laughs> We just want a good quality of life and we just want to feel good. And, you know, it comes at a cost financially to get there.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail like earlier when you said you have vaginal dryness, then there is pain with intercourse. Then this sort of becomes this psychological cycle and your partner, you know, as lovingly, they may not want to have sex because they don't want to cause you pain. And so Every time you think of sex, you're just automatically thinking, oh my gosh, this is gonna be painful. So yeah, and like Monica said, I think another uh, goal for us through this podcast is how can we improve the quality of life for the women? And I think, you know, for myself, I always say, I don't care how long I live, but whatever time I live, I am going to enjoy my life and have good quality of life, you know? And, you know, the things you talked about, um, vaginal dryness. And when I first started tamoxifen, it was not so much the vaginal dryness, but I had frequent UTIs mm-hmm. and I went to a number of different urologists trying to figure out what's happening to, you know, and I think the tamoxifen, the anti estrogen or hormonal block, it just changes the flora of just not only vaginal tract, but also your ur- urinary tract, I think. And that's what the, doc- the urologist told me. And I had never heard that before. And yeah. so th- these are all real life issues that we face and, um, uh, just you know, having this knowledge and asking your physician what's the right thing for you, and starting with the non-hormonal therapy to you know hormonal therapy. And as a breast surgeon, as much as I say no estrogen, I would say it's okay to use a vaginal estrogen cream if your gyn is on board with this, and maybe less frequency. As someone that had cancer or did not have cancer, rather, the whole thing about having sex is just preventing stenosis, preventing atrophy, and you know, just frequent use. And I think we as physicians, as breast surgeons, unfortunately, we just don't have time in our day to explain those things to the patients, to get that knowledge that mm-hmm. it is important that you have sex. Maybe you want to schedule it just like you schedule a meeting or you <laughs> know, like it's maybe schedule it three times a week or whatever that works for you. Um, it's really important to put that on the calendar.
2: So, yeah. yeah. So speaking of that, the drug is called Vyleesi, V-Y-L-E-E-S-I. V- v- it's, um, <laughs> It's when you know our patients don't know how to pronounce things. Bromelainotide, B R E M E L A N O T I D E. So it's been treated. It's been approved to treat hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So that's one of the the new the newest ones out there.
1: While we are on this topic, I also want to see what's your take on vaginal lasers for cancer patients.
2: Yeah, you know, there's pros and cons to it. We have the Mona Lisa touch in our office. I will tell you just from clinical experience, it's not hundred percent effective.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, some patients do really well and notice an improvement. And when you mention UTIs, that is another area that the vaginal lasers can help stress incontinence, urinary urgency, and frequency oftentimes go hand in hand with the loss of estrogen. And again, because the bladder has, guess what? estrogen receptors. Right, right. So I like you have seen patients, you know, like you were experiencing where they're like, Oh, my God, I have a UTI, I have a UTI, but the cultures are always negative. Negative, Correct. Yeah. And, you know, you you are literally going, well, it's not an infection. It is a result of this loss of estrogen that you're experiencing those women actually respond really well to low doses of vaginal estrogen. And the lowest doses out there, are like four micrograms. There are 10 microgram tablets. You can do the creams. One thing that we really haven't addressed is the idea of doing the DHEA or yeah, the,
1: yeah.
2: Um, the non-estrogen vaginal supplements. So you can do compounded testosterone. You can do the Enterosa, which is the progesterone or the DHEA inserts. So those are some other options that kind of fall into that non-estrogen hormonal, but not there to worry someone, you know, if they're concerned about their breast cancer status. So we do, we do have that again, I run into, oh, my insurance doesn't cover that or the compounding testosterone is really expensive, but there's options out there, right? Like you can at least say, okay, have these choices. Now you have to decide kind of, you know, risk benefit ratio as well as cost benefit ratio.
1: This is such great information for anyone that's listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. And it sounds
0: like talk to your doctor. We've, you've mentioned some really great options for them to consider or to bring to their doctor. But uh, as a patient, I think it's important to know that young women who listen to this or whatever age is that you're not alone. And the the pain you may be experiencing, Dr. Halla-Harvey, you mentioned psychologically as well. It can put a lot of anxiety in our lives, Mm -hmm. dealing with things we weren't made to deal with, whether it's cancer or the pressure to have sex or pressing ourselves or the effect it has on our partner. These are all real things that can sometimes come with a cancer diagnosis. So just know that you're not alone
1: in in experiencing this at a really young age, or even an older age as well. Yeah. I would also say, like in medical school, we were not taught any of this. Yeah, uh, sure. I agree. I really and actually, I wanted to say, I just like went through this huge textbook, and I just got this. It's the newest edition. To just to kind of see, do they talk about it anywhere in the survivorship issues? They really don't. If they do, it's like two sentences. And this is such an important topic for other physicians who's listening to this podcast. We have to have the conversations with patients. And sometimes some of my male colleagues I think feel uncomfortable bringing the topic up, but it's really important for the doctors to ask. But if you're a patient, ask your doctor, and they mm-hmm. have to talk to you about it. And don't be silent.
2: Yeah. So one thing I would say is when patients come in for an annual exam, you know, there's so much that you want to cover in that annual exam, that I almost appreciate it more when somebody schedules a separate appointment. Yeah just to go through these issues. I didn't
0: know you could do that. Like I did. I mean, that sounds silly, but it makes perfect sense. I I never, it never crossed my mind to do something.
2: When you call, just say, I want to schedule an appointment for a consultation to discuss, you know, the problems that I'm having with these symptoms, whether it's menopausal symptoms, whether it's just the vaginal dryness, sexual libido issues, but and, and some people are very private. They don't want to tell the front desk that. So I would just say, yeah. I would like to schedule a consult. That way I have time or your doctor has time or the physician you go to, the breast surgeon, whoever it may be, has the time to address that. They're not feeling like, you know, one hand on the door and that most important question is being asked and you're doing them a disservice, right? Because yeah. I always feel like, oh, why, why? You know, then, and then I kind of have to backtrack and say, you know, I really, really want to talk about this with you, but in the confines of an annual exam, we probably can't address it adequately. So let's schedule another
0: appointment. Oh, I love that's like yeah. such great advice. Yeah. Thank you. I just, because you don't also want to wait for your annual exam Correct. to bring yeah. up these questions. It could be another <laughs> six months. So having that consultation... Yeah, we're scheduling it now would be so helpful. So that that's awesome.
2: Great tip. I think another couple of things I just wanted to um, kind of bring up too is when we think about risk reduction, people forget Mm -hmm. that birth control pills are an amazing way to reduce your risk for ovarian cancer and uterine cancer, endometrial Mm -hmm. cancer. And it's something that we don't we almost have to, we have to think about it in terms of our BRCA1 and 2 patients because there is data that supports using oral contraceptives for risk reduction in those patients prior to risk reduction surgery. And it cuts, if, you're, if you've if you been on birth control pills for 10 years or more, you're cutting your risk for ovarian cancer by 80%. That's huge. That's huge.
1: Yeah, I know, that.
2: you know And after five years, it's a 50% reduction in risk having your tubes removed cuts your risk for ovarian cancer by 60 to 70%, even if the ovaries are left in place. So RGYN oncologists are involved in a study where they're looking at that subset of patients that maybe need tubes and ovaries removed, but are agreeable or go into the arm of having just the tubes removed, because then they still have that hormonal support, but then they get potentially risk reduction surgery So I am so excited that there's just so much out there on the frontier of this, this whole area of risk reduction surgery, preventative medications like birth control pills. Um, The Marina IUD is a great preventative for endometrial cancer, for endometriosis, not that, you know, it overlaps with breast cancer. But I just think of things like, what would I want? I want prevention. I'm all about prevention. I talk about diet as prevention. I talk about exercise. I mean, if I could prescribe exercise for risk reduction of cancer, think of all the cancers. I mean, even breast cancer, if you exercise four times a week or more, you reduce your risk. Colon cancer, right? I mean, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, osteoporosis, I mean, all these things impact women. And I think as a society, we've gotten so dependent on drugs to treat Mm -hmm. as opposed to preventative care, because there's no money in prescribing exercise, right, right. you know, there's no yeah. money for us in prescribe and, and for physicians, we're not making the money anyway. But when you think about research, like, why aren't things like exercise researched yeah. more? Why aren't things like our what we eat? You know, why aren't those things adequately researched? It's because there aren't companies backing up the research, right? Well, I tell people tamoxifen reduces the risk
1: of, you know, developing breast cancer
2: by 50% for
1: those patients who are on it for Mm -hmm. risk reduction, but exercise cuts it down by 30 or 40%. I mean, it's very close to tamoxifen without the side effects. You feel so great after you're done exercising. And so if you put it that way, you're like, Oh my gosh, exercise is so important. Not just, it makes you feel good, but like all of those, you know, different, uh, things that you mentioned. So that's great. Um, I just wanted to go back, touch back on one thing and about the BRCA patients who have risk-reducing prophylactic cell finger oophorectomy, removing the tubes and the ovaries, and you're giving them estrogen and as breast surgeons, hundred percent support that. How about those patients who still have an intact uterus? Yeah. Do you, what do you do for them?
2: Right. So I do think your literature and even our literature shows that that progesterone may be the bad player when it comes to Correct. breast cancer more so than estrogen. Right. But if you have, if you still have your uterus, you need that protective effect of progesterone. There are various progesterones. Most of the studies were looking at medroxyprogesterone. Prometrium is a plant-based progesterone that may have less impact when it comes to breast cancer. Hasn't been researched as much. Um, norathendrone, norathendrone acetate or other progesterones that maybe have less impact when it comes to breast cancer, a lever releasing IUD, Morena, Kylena, you know, those Skyla, those may be something to consider in these patients, um, where you can, you can do more of a localized effect of the progesterone and then the estrogen orally.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I wanna switch gear a little bit. We have a mutual patient who underwent a prophylactic uh, bilateral mastectomy because of her family history and our personal history of ATP on a, on a previous biopsy. And on after the surgery is finished, she was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. Some final pathology, we saw that she has DCIS. So she's only 42. And actually, just saw her yesterday, and I I told her that we'd be talking to you today. So she still has the Marina IUD, and she's strongly hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And you, do you feel that it's safe for her to leave the IUD in?
2: So again, you and I have had this conversation. Yeah, Yeah. I cannot find good data either way. Right, I think it comes down to customizing and personalizing, and the patient understanding the pros and cons. I I tend to lean on the yes, I think overall, it probably is okay to leave the Mirena in. I know oftentimes the breast surgeons are reluctant to leave the Mirena in and, you know, we'll recommend getting the self or we'll recommend doing some non-hormonal contraceptive, like the copper IUD. So mm-hmm. I, it, it's hard. I mean, yeah. I, I have I, the one I was referencing the 29 year old She's had her levonorgestrel IUD. And since she was 30, because every time she, I mean, she was, it was recommended she have it removed. She had it removed for a short period of time and she felt horrible. She's like, no, I I'm okay with having it left in. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it comes down to the patients, how they feel. Um, I hope that as we and sadly, as we see younger patients, we start to see more of that research, you know, where we look yeah. at, you know, the, the IUD is, is it safe? Is it not safe? Yeah. How much does it really increase the risk, right? Yeah. In
1: yeah. my situation, I was on uh, oral contraceptives, for over 10 years when I was diagnosed with cancer and, um, and after I was diagnosed with cancer, been through my treatment, had to take tamoxifen I did not have ways to have in you know, a birth control so I told my husband that it's your turn to get him a second yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm and I know he's going to be he's not going to be very happy I'm talking about this on the <laughs> podcast but I think I do want to talk about it because I think that is another option and I was talking mm-hmm. about that to the patient as you have done everything, you've had kids, (laughs) you've gone through all this, maybe he needs to do something to help you with this. So you can take one for the team. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. And that's exactly what I said. And
2: why, why isn't that addressed more? I mean, I always talk about that. women come in and they ask, you know, I'd like to have a tubal ligation, or I want to have my tubes removed. I'm like, has your husband considered getting a vasectomy? Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I think that's an important
1: question. No, so I, I think it's something we need to talk about. And that's pr- purposefully, I brought that up. My husband was super scared of needles. <laughs> that's <laughs> why <he told> <laughs> I'm like, okay, buddy, I just gave birth to two kids. So you can do something for this <laughs> for our team. So, and he did, he, I mean, he did great. And it's an outpatient procedure in the office. Like, I mean, compared to, you know, tubal ligation, you have to go to the surgery for that. So right. I think that's something that we should offer and talk to our patients about. That's definitely an option. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, you mentioning your husband and being embarrassed, but I think we yeah. should talk more openly yeah. about yeah. this. Like we, yeah. it shouldn't be this thing we carry with shame. If yeah. a man has a mastectomy yeah. and here we are with our mastectomy or whatever, right. it, you know, like yeah. it yeah. shouldn't be like yeah. shamed at all. It's, right. it's a, it's a normal thing to yeah. happen to have done. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: yeah. So there was one other thing that I prescribe a fair amount that I feel like people don't know much about, which is reloxaphine or Avista.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, in in women who are postmenopausal, have osteopenia, or have a risk for, you know, family history of breast cancer, um, or even heart disease. I I talk about Avista quite a bit and I didn't know what your thoughts are on AVISTA yeah. I I think it's a great drug, but then people are like, Oh, but I got hot flashes on it, or you know, I had leg yeah. cramps on it. And I think, well. Overall, there's more benefits than the side effects. So
1: there is a STAR study, uh, a preventative study that looked at tamoxifen and raloxifen. And the reduction of invasive breast cancer was pretty similar to to, uh, to raloxifen and tamoxifen, up to 50% reduction of developing invasive breast cancer. But raloxifen did not prevent non-invasive cancer such as DCIS. Mm-hmm. as the, the tamoxifen did do that. There were more vasomotor side effects with tamoxifen than they were with raloxifen, which is why I think raloxifen is more tolerated. Uh, and also it works for osteoporosis. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's a great, great option. So, so for some reason, uh, breast surgeons, we haven't bought into it too much. Uh, I think because of the data that it doesn't really do a great job of preventing non-invasive cancers right. and it's only been studied in the postmenopausal women and right. I know that's that's who you're prescribing it to so
2: I'm surprised that you know I recently talked to a patient about it, and she's like I've never heard of it yeah and it's old school I said it's been yeah. around for 20 years at least you know yeah yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a,
1: and we actually do talk about it in our didactics uh, with the with our fellows and residents. And part of the reason that we don't prescribe as much is uh, because of you know yeah. not having as much effect on the non-invasive cancer. Yeah, this has been so amazing, so wonderful, Dr. Samani. You are amazing. Uh, you're doing such great things. Not just you know being a patient advocate and wanting the best for the patient, helping her improve quality of life. But you're at there locally, nationally, you know, advocating for these women with your, your political advocacy, and that's really, really well appreciated. I am so grateful to be your colleague, and I'm so grateful to share patience with you. And thank you so much for for this podcast and making the time to you know. Yeah. To this. I know how busy you are, and you're rounding today,
2: and you've so one one other quick comment on that, you yeah. know. And I'm always all about you know this idea of. We have to, you know, if we if we don't vote, we can't complain. If we we can't impact legislation. So here in Ohio, there's another primary in August before the general election. So I really want to encourage people listening to this podcast to make sure you're registered to vote. Yeah. Make sure you know who your candidates are and that you look at what are they doing in the healthcare space. I mean, across the board, we all see our patients struggling with the cost of medicine versus the cost of food versus the cost of gas. And what is gonna go down the tubes is the medication first, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So
2: I really wanna encourage people to like get out their vote, think about, you know, pushing Congress to look at universal health care, to look at something that cover, because outcomes are better once you get to Medicare. Outcomes are better for hypertension, for diabetes, because those patients have coverage.
1: yeah yeah Yeah. you know one of my favorite quotes is a be the change you wish to see in the world by Mahatma Gandhi and you are living it you're you're making that change that you're Mm -hmm. hoping and dreaming for others and I think you know when you're gone that's your legacy that's what you're leaving behind and you're making a change for this world so
2: it's such a privilege to have you here today thank you you so much thank you I really appreciate you asking me to come on and you know, pontificate about all the things that I think are so important. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.